0: Welcome to Early Childhood Policy Matters, a podcast for early childhood professionals and strategic partners hoping to use research to inform policy and better serve children, families, and their communities. Today, we continue our regional story series, looking at the innovative work being done in states and communities across the country with support from the Preschool Development Grant Birth Through Five initiative. Host Mary Clute takes us to Rhode Island where unique approaches to early childhood funding are being used to expand access to high quality preschool programs. That's right now on Early Childhood Policy Matters.
1: Hello, and welcome to Early Childhood Policy Matters. I'm Mary Clute, Principal Education Researcher with SRI Education. Today, I am excited to be joined by two incredible early childhood leaders from Rhode Island. First, we have Kayla Rosen, Director of Early Childhood Strategy with the State Governor's Office. Welcome, Kayla. Hi. Next, we have Lisa Nugent, Coordinator of Early Learning with the Rhode Island Department of Education. Thanks so much for joining us, Lisa.
2: Hey, Mary. So happy to be here. All right, so let's talk a
1: little bit about Rhode Island's work related to pre-K. What are Rhode Island's goals for expanding access to pre-K in the state?
3: Mary, thanks so much again for having us. Um, Rhode Island is really committed to reaching universally accessible pre-K. And when we say that, we mean a seat for any kid who wants it in a high-quality, full-day, full-school-year program that is free to families. And so our goal has been 7,000 seats for four-year-olds because we have about 10,000 kids per age cohort in Rhode Island, we're very small. Um, And that has been our goal. But recently, there's been a push to really think about three-year-olds as well. And we're really excited to be thinking about that in the
1: coming year and years. Great. What a wonderful benefit for families that will be when you reach that goal. What are some of the challenges that you've encountered while working toward those goals?
2: So I would say when I came to ride uh, probably about six years ago now, we only had one model model which was we would fully fund a classroom. And in listening to a lot of our stakeholders, and especially our small business holders, we really found out that there was a facilities issue. There wasn't a lot of space that was available for one full classroom to be dropped into. We also found that children who had been with a center or with a Head Start program from birth on really wanted to stay in that program where they were more comfortable with the teachers. It worked for their, you know, commute, for their, you know, family life. And unfortunately, we were putting them in a lottery and then they would get a school, you know, on the other side of town. So we heard from a lot of our small business owners that that was an issue. We also listened to our Head Start partners. They've been great partners throughout this entire expansion. And one of the things they really talked about was we have a very diverse socioeconomic mix in our classrooms. This is not a program only for low-income children. It is for any child who is is four by September 1st of that given year. And they said it was almost like we had underprivileged on one side and overprivileged on the other side of the same corridor. And why aren't we all in these classrooms together? Um, And so we really put our heads together to try to find out how do we address those concerns of not enough empty classrooms Making sure family had choice in where they were going to school when we were starting to rebuild out what universal pre-K would look like.
1: That's really valuable feedback. Um, So how did the PDG B-5 grant enable you to address those challenges?
3: So PDG B-5 has been extremely helpful in helping us to expand in a couple of different ways. First is before PDG B5, I think we had just over a 1,000 pre-K seats. So we said 7,000 was the goal. With PDG, we've been able to expand to 2,300 seats. I think it's more like 1,400 seats to 2,300 seats that we've been able to expand. That has been huge right? Because that is a huge jump in terms of the number of seats, the number of families that we could serve, and the number of kiddos who who could have this incredible high-quality early learning experience in the midst of the pandemic that we were able to expand. So first, uh, PDG has allowed us to expand. Second, we were able to expand so much because we are developing new funding and service delivery models that address the challenges that Lisa just talked about. And it was through the PDG process of collaborating across agencies, helping us develop a new governance structure, a new work stream to bring our different agencies together to think through new funding models that allowed us to create new ideas and actually implement them together. And without the grant kind of pushing us to collaborate and giving us the space to think more creatively around how we bring different funding streams together, we never would have been able to expand as cost-effectively,
1: as rapidly, and frankly, as creatively as we did. Great. Can you talk about the different funding streams that you braided together to fund pre-K? Yeah, there are
3: a lot of different fund streams we've been braiding. So foundationally, we use our pre-K categorical funds at the Rhode Island Department of Education that fund the program. And with these new models, we've been able to braid and blend with Head Start funds, with Child Care Assistance Program, And with stimulus funds, uh, including the Governor's Emergency Education Relief Fund, as well as our PDG B-5 funds. And those together have been able to grow our program. And in the last two years, by using these new funding models, the cost to the state categorical fund is lower by being able to braid in the Head Start or the CCAP funds. Again, a high-quality classroom costs what it costs to do high quality, but the question of which fund streams are coming in allows us to really maximize and optimize the fund streams that we have available to reach as many kids
1: as possible each year. That's great. Um, Can you tell me a little bit more about some of these new
2: funding models that you created? Sure. Um, So They were pretty unique. We really wanted to celebrate what we already had in the early childhood landscape and to recognize where we already had high-quality programs. RI Pre-K was lucky enough to really come into light after the near benchmarks had been put out, so we built our program around making sure that we hit all 10 of those near benchmarks. We also did a lot of mirroring of our head starts. We know that the Head Starts in Rhode Island are all high quality programs, and we wanted to make sure that we mirrored that. So, what we decided to do, and we really started it with Head Start and then kind of went into the community based organizations, was to say, okay, you've got a Head Start classroom and you're servicing 15, you know, below income children. Let us pay almost like a private tuition on top of that to allow children above income, especially those families who fall between 135 and 185% of poverty that don't necessarily qualify for Head Start, but whose families really struggle in finding appropriate childcare and education programs. And so we started braiding our funding together. Head Start would take care of the Head Start children with their federal dollars, and the RI pre-K dollars would come in on top of that. That got us thinking that there's got to be a way to do that also in our community-based centers. And so we took kind of that pilot and that idea and brought it over to the community-based centers and said, if a child is already getting a subsidy voucher for CCAP, which is our voucher system in Rhode Island to subsidize child care, we don't want to take that child and move them into a different pre-K and take that money away from a small business owner. What we rather do is layer quality funding on top of what they were already getting which helps us raise the pay of our teachers, because we do expect a bachelor degree teacher in every classroom. Allowed more flexibility in parents deciding for family choice where they wanted to send their child. They could stay at their same school. It waived co-pays for families through that period, so really helped them out financially, especially during this pandemic and now endemic that we are experiencing. We had a lot of small business owners who were losing enrollment and they had five seats available. So rather than try to run a classroom with their two teachers and, you know, under-enrolled, RI Pre-K was able to say through the lottery, hey, we'll give you those extra five children and we'll pay for them with the RI Pre-K and the PDG funding dollars, which really allowed for a lot of good faith in the community. There are times when people hear, oh, we're going to Universal, you're going to run out small businesses, or you're going to take away from the federal Head Start grant. And our goal is truly to support both of those as we build towards those 7,000 seats that we're hoping to get to. My partner, Nicole, who serves on the DHS side, is also committed to quality. And so we collaborate and have we have weekly meetings where we are talking through some of the challenges, what are the successes that we're seeing, how do we keep all of our money and really stay as a cohesive unit so that RI Pre-K is something that isn't pushing anyone else out, it is bringing everybody together. We actually did two Head Start models, one similar to the community-based, but Head Start for some of our schools was 170 days instead of 180 days. And so we paid for those 10 extra days. With our PDG money which allowed those children to have a full year education. So have you encountered any challenges with this work? So we thought we were brilliant and we solved everything and this was going to be great and we were going to go forward. We did find some challenges as we were going forward. So for example, we really do a lottery system because we don't have enough seats for all of the children. And so to be fair. We really put everyone through this lottery system. It's actually closing on July 6th. Then we'll be pulling all of our applicants. But in some classrooms, they were already full with maybe matriculating students or Head Start students. And so we were advertising a lottery in a spot that maybe we weren't going to be able to give away seats. So we fixed that for this year. And I think the other bigger challenge in our community-based centers was you qualify for CCAP, which you qualify for a year. But if that happened in January, right, of the year prior, you might lose your CCAP funding in January. So we had to make sure that we compensated and had enough funding to then let that child continue with their enrollment.
1: So, what are your plans for sustaining this work after the PDGB 5 grant ends? It's a great question. And I think sustainability
3: is something that we think about all the time. And I'm sure other state partners do as well. Our FY23 budget started today, and there's some really exciting investments that are going to set us up well for continued expansion in pre-K. For example, we just invested in doubling the number of TEACH scholarships that we can support for the next couple years, so more early educators will have the opportunity to go and attain higher degrees and credentials, which will allow them to potentially teach in pre-K classrooms because the number of qualified workforce is certainly something that could be a barrier to expansion and to sustainability. And so that's a really key investment for expanding pre-K. About a year ago, voters in Rhode Island passed a first of its kind for our state facilities bond to support expansion of high quality early learning spaces. So we have $15 million to invest in facilities, which is another key Consideration for expansion, especially in community based programs, is having enough physical space to actually serve the four year olds and potentially three year olds. So, facilities and workforce, those are two key investments that have happened recently that we're working on to make sure that we're in a place to continue expansion and continue the momentum. But we are going to face uh, somewhat of a gap in continued operational funding for the classrooms. And that's something that you know, we're all really aware of and something that we'll continue to be talking about at the state level for future budget investments. And we are, of course, incredibly hopeful that something like Build Back Better might pass at the federal level that will support our continued sustainability and expansion here in Rhode Island.
1: So how did your work through PDG set the stage for that new funding from the state?
3: So I think PDG helped set us up incredibly well in a couple ways. One, again, was that collaboration where making an investment in pre-K or in child care, which is all part of the same birth to five system, we are able to take those funds and invest them in a way that strengthens the system as a whole. So just as Lisa was describing, the pre-K funds are in no way harming our infant-toddler part of the system, and in fact, might be strengthening them. We are not uh, taking business away from the fabric of our community-based providers. We are making sure that every decision is done with the community, with families, and with the provider network in mind, as opposed to thinking really separately just based on what each department has in mind. So PDG has set up that collaboration, those shared goals, and the shared idea of what we need to be moving towards as a system, Um, shared definition of quality, and shared kind of perspective on how we're going to support our birth through five sector in really recovering from the pandemic, as well as coming out
1: stronger from the pandemic. So what advice do you have for other states that are considering new models
2: to fund preschool? So I think we can sum that up in one word, which is collaboration. So one of the pieces of our mixed delivery system that we didn't talk a lot about is that we also have our classrooms in public schools. And so our governance structure right now, Head Starts and our community-based programs are licensed and governed by DHS in our state. And our public schools or our LEAs are governed by RIDE. So you have two state agencies that are trying to pull money from both agencies to braid together. And then we add Kayla in from the governor's office, who is helping us braid in the PDG funding. Regardless of if your state has an office of early childhood, it still usually doesn't include our children with special needs. And we service children with special needs in our RI pre-K programs all the time through an itinerant model, which is embedded services within their classroom. The only way that happens is through communication and collaboration. And so we do have a team that meets once a week. Sometimes that meeting devolves. And what we're doing is building relationships with each other. So we can pick up the phone and call anybody we want because we have built that relationship and that trust factor that we know we can throw any idea out there and it will be thought of respectfully, even if it's dismissed. And I think that would be the key to making this successful.
3: And if I can add to that agree with everything Lisa just said. And I I think another important piece is that we start with a shared vision. So everyone's on the same page about what we're trying to achieve, which is what's going to be best for kids and families. And yes, we have all these funding streams, they all do different things. But in our heads, we sat down and really just led by Lisa and Nicole in particular saying, we want families to have choice because we know there's a lot going on at this age cohort. We want families to have choice. We want to minimize transitions for kids of this age. We want to support the entire birth through five sector. How can we use what's available to us to meet those goals? And that kind of foundational principles of first, what is high quality pre-K and aligning to those near standards? And second, the experience from a family perspective and provider perspective that we've received a lot of feedback on. How do we make the funding do all those things? Um, and so it was really a, a shared goals allowed us to then work towards what we would do with the funds and have everyone be on the same page and be really creative. And as Lisa said, throw some things out there that get shoved right back at you because they're not a good idea. Um, but it's a it's a place where we can all put ideas out there and see what's going to stick. And so it would just highly encourage. Having that set of shared goals, really keeping children at the forefront, and working kind of the magic in the background with funding streams to get kids what they need. And that's what we've been doing as much as we can in Rhode Island.
1: Well, this has been a fantastic conversation and a valuable look into the great work your teams and so many others have been doing in Rhode Island. Kayla and Lisa, thank you so much
2: for joining me today. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having us. We love to uh, talk about our state.
0: Thanks for listening to Early Childhood Policy Matters, produced by the National Technical Assistance Center for Preschool Development Grants Birth Through Five. Find more episodes by going to childcareta.acf.hhs.gov and searching for Early Childhood Policy Matters. You can also find us on your favorite podcast app or on SoundCloud at EC Policy Matters.